God, our Father, we praise You today. God, we give You glory and we give You honor. We give You thanksgiving. And we lift up Your name and exalt You. We praise You, Lord, for the gift of life that You give us. You give us our breath. You give us everything that we have. Every good gift comes from Your loving hand and we thank You. We thank You, Lord, that You have sent Your Son Jesus to give His life in payment of our sins to reconcile us to You, to bring us to Yourself, God, to wash our sins away and to make us clean, to make us whole, to make us new creatures in Christ. God, we thank You and we praise You. We thank You for the blessed Holy Spirit whom You have given to live inside of our hearts. We thank You that He is with us continually washing us and cleansing us and urging us to love You and to worship You. We thank You, Lord, that You are indeed completing that good work which You began in us. We honor and we bless You for the joy and the peace and the love that You pour out in our hearts through Your Holy Spirit. We thank You for all that You're doing in our lives. We want to live lives worthy of you, God. We want to share your love with others. We want to worship you in holy conduct. And we want to offer acceptable sacrifices to you as a kingdom of priests which you have called out of darkness. We thank you that you have called us by your name and called us to be witnesses of your love and your grace. Strengthen our faith, God. Encourage us. Help us in these dark days to be a shining light. We thank you for all that you are to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so with that, we've been in a series talking about the gospel and looking at the many forms of the gospel. You recall that I have been talking to you about the fact that there's one gospel and that the gospel itself at its core, is really rather simple. The message about Jesus and His redemption that He worked for us on the cross. And that through repentance and faith in Him, we can be reconciled to God and granted eternal life. But that, more than that, the Gospel takes many forms and shows itself in the Scripture uh, to have many various ways in which it is expressed. And so we've been going through those and talking about that, the last of which we talked about the eschatological aspects of the gospel. The fact that the gospel confers on us a king and a kingdom. And that Jesus is presented to us as our king. And not only that, but in him the kingdom of God has come to the kingdoms of this world. And that he, he has broken into time and space with his kingdom and declared that uh, he is now calling all men everywhere to repent of their sins. And he's swung open the doors of salvation so that mankind can be saved through repentance from sin and faith in our Lord Jesus. And, uh, and, and so he's also then told us of his kingdom and that the kingdom has come, but that it has this element of being here now in the person of Christ and in the preaching of the gospel, but that it has not yet reached its fulfillment. And so the kingdom has this element to it where it is now, but not yet. And we talked about the different forms and expressions of the kingdom of God in the New Testament and how important it is for us to be discerning those different forms when we see it in the scripture. And so the gospel has this eschatological element to it, and that is that The kingdom has not yet reached its climax and its fulfillment. And so we talked about, for instance, the second coming of Christ and and some of the main things that Jesus pointed out, important events that were yet to come in time and space that we are eagerly awaiting and, and that will come to pass surely soon and very soon. Amen? Of course, we sing about things like this. I think of that song, soon and very soon we're going to see the king. Amen? And there won't be any more crying or dying there. We're going to see the King. Amen? And so us Christians live 
in the hope of the kingdom of God and in the coming kingdom of God because we realize this is not our kingdom. This is not our home. We are not comfortable here. This place is filled with death and dying and crying and mourning and pain. Amen? This current creation is cursed with sin. And it is a miserable, miserable place and a miserable, miserable state of affairs. Amen? Amen. But the Christian lives in, in the hope of the coming kingdom of God when God will completely destroy this creation and create a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more dying or mourning or crying or pain. Amen? For the old order of things, the scripture says, will pass away. And God says, behold, I am making all things new. Amen? I don't know about you, but that's what I'm hoping for. Amen? Well, today we're going to talk about another form of the gospel. And, uh, if you will, another aspect of the gospel. And want to try to clarify some things that we've been talking about and building upon. And uh, this here is, is about the Lordship of Christ. And so when, when Jesus is presented to us in Scripture, the question here is, who is he? Who is Jesus? Right? And he's not only a Savior, because you realize Jesus' name means the Lord saves. Right? But he's also... A Lord. He is the Lord and the King. Amen? And people get this confused. This is something that has been really confused <laughs> in, uh, in, in, in this late time, in, these, in this last days. Excuse me, I forgot to hit the button on the tape. <laughs> Okay, so then, Jesus is not just a Savior, He is also a Lord. I'm going to recommend this book to you. It's called The Gospel According to Jesus. This is a book that was written many, many years ago by John MacArthur. And it focuses on the gospel that Jesus Himself preached in the Gospels. And so it looks at the different elements of the gospel that Jesus preached. And and again, I want to point something out to you. If you have read this book, how many of you have read this book? A few? Seen it? More? This this is a book every Christian should read. Okay? And uh, one of the things about um, something that's very interesting, if you look through the table of contents in this book, you know, it's a survey of the gospel according to the way Jesus taught the gospel. What's interesting is, is that when you look at it, There's no specific one form of the gospel that really comes through in the teaching of Jesus. But that the gospel has these many forms, okay? And this is what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks. But in these many forms um, is seen the gospel in in its fullness, in its wholeness, okay? And, And so, if you will, some of the things that he points out are Jesus calls for a new birth. Jesus demands true worship. Jesus receives sinners but refuses the righteous. Jesus opens blind eyes. He challenges an eager seeker. He seeks and saves the lost. He condemns a hardened heart. He offers a yoke of rest. Okay? And so then, how does he do that? Well, he does that in so many various forms and ways. Think about, for instance, the character of the teaching of Jesus. He offers things uh, in illustrative parables, right? And so that some of the forms that this would take would be the parable of the soils, right? Or this, what we would call the parable of the sower, right? Or how about the wheat and the tares? Or the treasure of the kingdom? Or the first and the last? Or the lost and the found? Or the vine and the branches? These are all these parabolic teachings that Jesus gives to display the nature of the gospel. But it takes all these various forms for the Lord to kind of explain completely and wholly what the gospel really is. Are you with me? So there's one gospel, okay? Jesus is the gospel. 
but it's expressed in these many various forms, okay? And so one of those forms that we're going to talk about and look at here is the Lordship of Christ. Now, you remember when we went through the text in Romans 3, Romans 3, 19 through 28, there was a specific doctrine that we highlighted in that section of text that we looked at for three weeks, Romans 3, 19 through 28. Who can tell me what that doctrine is? Anybody? The doctrine that was highlighted in the text of Romans 3, 19 through 28. Justification by faith. Okay? And so, if you will, you could kind of boil the gospel down to this one basic premise, right? That justification with God happens through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? However, when we understand what, uh, for instance, grace is, it brings a fullness to the meaning of what grace alone means. And when we understand what faith is, it brings a fullness of, of, of the meaning to understanding what faith is. And, and, and then when we understand who Christ is in his person and in his work, it brings a fullness of a meaning of what it means that only through Christ can we be saved. Amen? Of course, we talked about that last year when we looked at the person and the work of Jesus. And now we're looking at the message of Jesus, which is the gospel. And the gospel is holding out the person and the work of Jesus is the only way to be justified and reconciled to God. Amen? Well, so in so doing, it's important that we understand when we say that salvation happens by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, what those things mean. Because they surely have meaning. And they've been illustrated in the, in the New Testament through these teachings of Christ and the apostles. And in these teachings, this gospel takes many forms. Are you with me? It takes all these various forms of, you know, parabolic teachings, and he's giving us the, the parables, and he's talking to us about these pictures of what real salvation looks like. Well, the kingdom of God is like a man who went out into his field and sowed seed, and some fell along the path, and some fell in, in, into the uh, bushes, and some fell into the good soil, right? And he's going and he's explaining what salvation looks like and how he's using this picture that's in this parable of what it is. Or he's talking about a vine and he's talking about spiritual life being, you know, he's the vine and we are the branches and if anyone abides in him, he bears much fruit. And he talks about the Christian life as something that's pictured as one bearing fruit, like one that's attached to the vine, right? But that one that does not bear fruit, right, is what? Cut off, right? Gathered up and burned, Right, And of course you see these kinds of expressions in the parables of Jesus describing to us what the kingdom of God and what salvation is like. It takes all these various forms for the Lord to give us a picture of what it means. Okay, give you another example. How about the, the church? The church in the New Testament is pictured in various ways, right? Uh, so if I say to you the body of Christ, you know what I mean, don't you? I mean the church, right? And the church is pictured in what other ways? Can anybody think of another way in which the church is pictured in the scripture? A bride, okay, how about another way? A building, okay? There's all these pictures where the Bible is illustrating to us the truth about the church. So it is with the gospel. There's all these pictures in the New Testament where God is illustrating to us the nature of salvation and the nature of true saving faith. Okay? And so, with that, is this idea about lordship. Okay? Well, concerning the lordship of Christ, in the 20th century, this doctrine really came under fire. And oddly enough, it didn't come under fire from liberal theologians who had dismissed the authority of Scripture. It actually came under fire within the evangelical church by theologians who affirmed the authority of Scripture. Now this is a very, very serious error because, if you will, among those who affirm the authority of the Scripture being God's Word, we have people twisting, if you will, the true biblical message of the Gospel. The problem with that is it's within those who affirm the authority of Scripture where the true church lives. 
Are you with me? Because those who dismiss the, the Bible as the authority, as the word of God, those we consider apostate. You understand it's an essential doctrine of the historic Christian faith that one affirmed that the Bible is the word of God. Are you with me? Okay, so in the 20th century, this doctrine of the lordship of Christ came under attack within the evangelical church. Okay? I want to read to you just a brief excerpt from the uh, foreword to this book, which was written by James Montgomery Boyce, a man who I admire greatly, who was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He's writing the foreword in the book, and, and this is what he says. He says, In the Gospel according to Jesus, MacArthur is not dealing with some issues or issue or issues external to the faith, but with the central issue of all, namely, what does it mean to be a Christian? His answers address themselves to what I consider to be the greatest weakness of contemporary evangelical Christianity in America. Did I say weakness? It is more. It is a tragic error. It is the idea, where did it ever come from, that one can be a Christian without being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reduces the gospel to the mere fact of Christ's having died for sinners, requires of sinners only that they acknowledge this by the barest intellectual assent, and then assures them of their eternal security when they may very well not be born again. This view bends faith beyond recognition, at least for those who know what the Bible says about faith, and promises a false peace to thousands who have been given verbal assent to the to this reductionist Christianity, but are not truly in God's family. How did this happen? No doubt the motives of those who have fallen into this profound error have been good. They want to preserve in its purity the gospel of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They know that adding works to faith is a false gospel, and they rightly want to avoid that heresy. But preserving the gospel is precisely what they have not done. They have warped and in some cases utterly destroyed it. These scholars, pastors and Bible teachers need to learn that there is no justification without regeneration. Jesus said you must be born again, John 3, 7. That faith without works is a dead faith and that no one will ever be saved by a dead faith, James said. Faith without deeds is useless, James 2.20. The mark of true justification is a perseverance in righteousness to the very end. Jesus told his disciples, All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm till the end will be saved, Matthew 10.22. That faith in Jesus who is a Savior but not Lord is faith in a Jesus of one's own devising. The Jesus who saves is the Lord. There is no other, and it was he who said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke 6.46 That if one wants to serve Christ, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow him. Luke 9.23 And that without, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12.14 and he goes on to say, well, that is the problem MacArthur tackles in this book. So the point of the, of the matter is, is that in this controversy that took place concerning the gospel in the 20th century in the evangelical church, this issue was raised. Does someone only have to intellectually ascend to the facts about Jesus in order to be saved? Or does there need to be a true living faith that changes the heart and changes the life so that the practice of that person becomes that consistent with the practice of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you with me? In other words, can somebody just say they believe in Jesus but go on living their life, their sinful life that they once possessed without any real change? Can that be? And what about this issue? What does the Bible have to say about this issue? And, and is it, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Does it mean that we simply acknowledge that he was a man that lived in history, that died on the cross? Even if we believe that he was raised from the dead, we might even believe in the deity of Christ. 
Okay? But when we believe in Jesus, does that have any practical uh, power to change our life? And if it does, is that an essential part of the faith? Or is that something that we can just kind of add on later? Are you with me? This is a major, major issue in the Bible. It's a major issue in the Gospel. It's a major issue in the teaching of Jesus. And it's a major issue in the teaching of the Apostles. Okay? And this issue is called, in, in these late times, the Lordship of Christ. Okay? So, <clears throat> with that in mind, let's, let's dig in, into this. The Lordship controversy. In discussing the Gospel, it is important to recognize that recent controversy that has taken place in evangelical Christianity in the 20th century. Certain so-called evangelicals sought to uphold the form of the Gospel which emphasizes faith in Christ apart from works, but in so doing, redefined the role of works in salvation to a degree which was very unhealthy and led to a corrupted form of the Gospel. This watered-down version of the Gospel has come to be known as easy believism. It emphasizes the fact that all one must do to be saved is to believe upon the person and work of Christ, acknowledging the facts about him and his gospel. Now, pay close attention to what we're saying here, okay? This is very important. If you are witnessing to somebody, you're, you're a born-again Christian, and you want to see somebody else be saved, and you're going to share the gospel with them, okay? How important is it for you to tell that person that they can't just mentally ascend to the details of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, but that in fact they must take on a living faith that changes their life? Is that an important element in what you're telling people? Okay? And, and so this is exactly what we're talking about. And we're talking about the way that the gospel has been watered down in the 20th century and that it emphasizes belief in Christ, right? And, and, and simply acknowledging the facts about his gospel. So you might be reading through the New Testament and you, you see where the Paul is there in the Philippian jail and, and the earthquake happens and the chains break loose and all the prisoners run free and the, the, get, the prison guard is, is cut to the heart and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Amen? Well, we see the gospel in one of its forms right there. What does that man need to do to be saved? Well, he simply needs to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, what does that mean? Does that just mean that he just says, well, I guess Jesus was this guy that lived in history, did his thing, and, and, and this was some, brought merit before God, and so now if I just believe that, I can be saved. Is that the end of it? No, it's not. It's not the end of it. And it's missing many very important elements of the gospel. Are you with me? And so it's important that we understand these elements of the gospel and that we, we not just be, remember like I use that term, reductionistic, and reduce the gospel to one form or the other, but that we're faithful to proclaim the gospel in all of its fullness, just like Jesus did in all these various forms. Okay? It's important that we understand those things. Well, this watered-down version of the gospel emphasizes uh, the fact that all one must do to be saved is to believe upon the person and work of Christ. Although this is a true part of the gospel, when it is overemphasized to the exclusion of the teaching that true saving faith is a faith that repents of sin and pursues love for Christ and God by obedience to their commandments. It corrupts the gospel and turns it into a kind of fire insurance for people wanting the benefits of eternal life but who are unwilling to turn from sin and obey God's commandments. You understand? So, if you will... What, what, what people do with this doctrine is, when it's overemphasized to say, all you got to do is believe, all you got to do is believe, all you got to do is believe, they run down the street with that, and they exclude all the other forms of the gospel. And so what it becomes is, if you will just intellectually acknowledge and believe in this historical person and work of Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life. Done. That, 
that is effectively all that one must do to be saved. And family, that is a perversion of the gospel. That is not all you have to do to be saved. Because in order to believe in Jesus, you must first repent of your sins. And the only way you can do that is being by, by being born again by the Holy Spirit of God. You must be born again. Are you with me? If you're not born again by the Spirit of God, you're going to perish in your sins. Period. Okay? These are fundamental elements of the gospel. And, and it's not just believe. That's not the gospel. That's a part of the gospel. Okay? And we can't just reduce it to that. This is a serious error. One that has no doubt led thousands of people astray from the true gospel and saving faith. The teaching of Jesus and the apostles is crystal clear on this topic. They taught that when one truly believes upon Christ, they have done this by the power and work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, and that the fruit of the Spirit, which flows from this true belief, produces a life of repentance, faith, and an ongoing pattern of obedience to Christ for the rest of one's life. Are you with me? So what I'm saying is the apostles taught that there was much more to this belief than just a mental assent or acknowledgement of the person and work of Jesus. But that, that is something that changes the person's life. Okay? And that this change happens by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration or by being born again. Okay? So, the, the, the Jesus and the apostles affirmed that people were deceived if they thought they knew Christ but did not obey him. I want to repeat that. Jesus and the apostles affirmed that people were deceived if they thought they knew Christ but did not obey him. So what are we saying? I am saying, in order for you to be saved, you must obey Christ. That the gospel calls people to obedience. If you do not obey, you will perish. You will die. Because obedience is a thing that characterizes true saving faith. Are you with me? So, when we say that the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works, what we're saying is, the works that you do when you believe upon Christ do not merit salvation for you. They simply show that the faith that you have is the real, genuine kind of faith that is the kind of faith that saves people. Are you with me? Right? Because let me tell you, even the demons believe who Jesus is. They know He's the Son of God. They know He lived and died and rose again. They know that and they affirm it. And you know what? They're still demons. And they're still going to wind up in the lake of fire. You see, belief only doesn't do it. But true belief, true saving faith in the Bible is something that characterizes itself by obedience to Christ. Okay? And I want to show you that in the Bible. How about just to get started, some of the words of Jesus. Matthew 7, verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so what is Jesus doing? Well, he's making a distinction between two kinds of people. Mere professors and true believers. And the mere professor says, Lord, Lord, to Jesus, but doesn't do the will of God. You understand? And the true believer says, Lord, Lord, and does the will of God. And he's the one who enters heaven. You understand? Very clear in Jesus' teaching. How about Paul? He says in Titus 1, verse 15 and 16, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their mind and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God. Get this. This sounds like so many people in America. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and what? Disobedient, disobedient and worthless for any good deed. You see what Paul is saying? He's making a distinction between the pure and the defiled. 
right? He's making a distinction uh, between those who are defiled and unbelieving and those who are pure and believing, right? And he's saying for those who are defiled and unbelieving, he says they profess to know God, they say they know God, they say they are spiritual, they say they believe in Jesus, but by their deeds they deny him being what? He says detestable and disobedient. In other words, what characterizes unbelief is disobedience. You see that? It's clear in the teaching of the apostles. How about James? James said, chapter 1, verse 22, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who do what? Delude themselves. You see, James is pointing out that those who hear the word of God, but don't do it, are deluding themselves. Understand? Again, James is pointing out that obedience to the word of God is what matters. Obedience to the word of God is where the rubber meets the road. That's the brass tacks. Amen? Are you with me? Okay, well, this controversy was really well defended by John MacArthur in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus. In this book, he focuses on the gospel which Jesus proclaimed and evaluated this doctrine in light of clear biblical texts. He was primarily refuting certain evangelical teachers who were teaching this watered-down version of the gospel at Dallas Theological Seminary. The primary teachers he was refuting were Lewis Sperry Schaefer, Zane Hodges, and Charles Ryrie, although there were others. There are many others that he cites in the book, cites their writings, and gives a bibliography of each defense that he gives. These teachers were responsible for training many thousands of evangelical pastors and church leaders in the 20th century. In his book, MacArthur documents these teachings and refutes them with clear biblical teaching. This corrupting of the true biblical gospel has indeed led to a serious state of affairs in the modern evangelical church and needs to be corrected for each successive generation. Now, listen to what I'm telling you, family. I'm telling you that this doctrine has infiltrated American evangelical Christianity to a degree that you and I do not even comprehend or understand. It has affected the entire church in the world, much less the evangelical church in America. Okay, So that what we've done is we have redefined the gospel to be something other than what it is in the Bible. Okay, And what we've done is we've reduced it. We've reduced it down to these neat little cliches that we like to think about. And, and furthermore, that's about how deep our faith goes. We hardly understand the biblical gospel. We hardly understand the teaching of Jesus because this is what we've done. We've watered it down. You understand what watering it down means, right? It's like kids getting into dad's liquor cabinet, right, and, and taking some out of the bottle and pouring water in there. What does it do? It dilutes it so that it has no power anymore, okay? This is what we've done to the gospel, Okay? It's been diluted, and I'm telling you, it's affected every one of us. It's affected the church wherever we are, okay? And so that we've redefined the gospel. We have all kinds of neat new terms that we coin the gospel for. Like, for instance, God loves you and has a plan for your life. You know? Well, really, tell me more about that. Well, you know, Jesus died for you and he loves you. Well, well, what does that mean? Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus have to die? And Jesus died for me? Can, can, can we answer all those questions? Or, or what is it that we're saying, right? Or, or you know, you want to be saved? Well, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. Well, where does that come from in the Bible? Are you with me? See, we have these little cliches that we develop that, that aren't biblical, Right? And, and more than that, it just kind of reduces our gospel for us into a nice, neat little package that sounds good to people. Well, let me tell you, there's nothing pretty about Jesus dying on a cross. It's a horrific thing. And it's an offense to people. It's an offense to people to know that they are so wicked and they have so offended a holy God that a, a Jesus has to come and die in their place 
and that his blood must be poured out of his veins in order for them to be reconciled to God. That offends people, right? That's why I keep telling you. We have whole churches devoted to, to, to preaching a gospel with no cross, no blood, right? No, no mention of sin, no mention of repentance. Well, let me ask you, what gospel do you have? If you only have a, a gospel with Jesus on the cross dying to pay the penalty for sin, how can anyone be saved? Right? I'm telling you, the largest church, evangelical church in America, will not mention the cross, the blood, sin, or repentance from the pulpit. Joel Osteen is his name. He's the pastor. The church is in Houston. It's in the, what is it, the basketball place. The compact center, right? Largest church, largest evangelical church in America. Let me tell you his rules. From his pulpit, he will not mention the cross, the blood, or sin, or repentance. And I want to ask you, if you remove all those elements from the gospel, what gospel are you preaching? Are you with me? Okay, well, look, I'm not picking on Joel. I'm picking on the fact that the modern evangelical church has become so watered down and so redefined the gospel that it's been redefined into all kinds of other things than what it really is. Are you with me? This is leading thousands and thousands of people astray from the true faith. And it is not a true form of Christianity. It is a false gospel and a false form of Christianity. Okay? And it's important for us to understand that. I'm telling you that some of the roots of how this happened was over this doctrine of lordship. Okay? Effectively, what happened was these men began to teach that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone and apart from works. And so what that meant was you simply mentally ascend to the truths about Jesus and that you're saved. And that at some point later in your life, you could, you could commit yourself to obedience to Christ and grow in a deeper life of faith, but that simply mentally ascending to the truth of the gospel was enough for you to be saved. You didn't have to repent of sins or have a change in your lifestyle. And, and what I'm saying is this is a fundamental denial of the biblical gospel. Okay? And so, if you will, John MacArthur points that out very good in this book. This, I, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks going through the content of what's in here, but I can recommend that to you, and you can go read it, and we can kind of move on from there. But the point is that um, uh, that the true biblical gospel in our day and age has been severely watered down and diluted of its power by this kind of thing, which we call easy believism. Okay? And so, furthermore, what I'm saying is, the true biblical gospel needs to be proclaimed and upheld in each generation so that we do not lose sight of the fundamental message of Christianity. You know, we're Christians. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? Why do we come to church on Sunday? What are we learning? What are we doing? What are we all about? Right? And you understand a Christian is a becoming a rare thing in our culture, right? Especially a born-again, Bible-thumping, evangelical Christian, right? By the, by the way, the term evangelical simply means gospel-believing, okay? So when you hear that, it means gospel-believing. I'm saying we need to proclaim the true biblical gospel because we are in danger of losing sight of the fundamental message of Christianity, okay? And that's what we're spending these many weeks going over, family. Okay? I hope you're seeing these things clearly in the text of Scripture. But we don't want to lose sight of this fundamental message of Christianity. That is, what is it? What is the fundamental message of Christianity? Well, it's the person and work of Jesus Christ and how one is saved by repentance and faith in Him. That's what it is. I mention this controversy in order to bring into focus a very important matter in defining the gospel. 
This has come to be known as the Lordship of Christ and explains the relation of the believer to Jesus as their master and king. Obedience to Christ is a gospel mandate and a major theme in the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. Now, let me make it really clear what I'm saying. Obedience to Christ is a gospel mandate. You know what that means? That means you have to do it. You must obey Christ or you are not uh, fulfilling his summons to his gospel. You cannot uh, believe upon Christ without obedience to God and his commandments. The two are inseparable. Okay? Now, I'm the same guy who sat up here and preached to you that justification is by faith alone. In Christ alone. Right? What I'm telling you now is, true saving faith has characteristics in it which are identified for us in the Bible so that you and I will know when we really have it. Are you with me? And one of those is obedience. One of those is obedience. Okay? Obedience is a gospel mandate. Don't doubt it for one minute. Furthermore, it is a major theme in the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. I'm going to show you this, and I'm going to make reference to many other scriptures that they have and, and point out some. But for instance, Jesus would say in Luke 6, 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Think about what Jesus is saying. He's talking to people who would be mere professors, right? They would, they would be a mere professor making a mere profession saying, Jesus, you're the Lord. Jesus, you're the Lord. Well, Jesus wants to know why we call him Lord, but don't do what he says. You understand what he's implying? He's saying, look, if I'm Lord, that means I'm authority. And if I'm authority and I tell you to do something, then you ought to do what? You ought to do it. You ought to obey it. You ought to carry it out. And so Jesus asks a very simple question. He says, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? We could flip that on its head. You know, why do you do not do what Jesus says but still call him Lord? Or... How about this? Are you confused? Jesus could have said that. Are you confused? Right? Because somebody who really thought Jesus was Lord, a natural consequence of that would be what? Obedience Obedience to his lordship. So when he gives a commandment, right? As Joshua, you taught us last week, it's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. It's an imperative. You know what that means? It means you've got to do it. It's a must do. Amen? Or well, how about in John 3.36? He says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What are you saying, Jesus? You see how clear this is in the words of Jesus? It's crystal clear. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, look, If you believe on the Son, you're going to have eternal life, right? But if you don't obey the Son, you're going to have God's wrath. So what's he doing? Now he's saying that is the negative consequence of disobedience is God's wrath. A natural fruit or byproduct of him who believes on the Son is what? Obedience. You understand? It's one of those Hebrew parallelisms. Remember what a Hebrew parallelism is? They're always using these, they they compare one thing to another in order, by contrast, to make something clear. You understand? So here's what Jesus means in in that verse. He's saying, right, obedience is a natural product of the one who believes. That's what he's saying. And he's doing that by by comparing with a contrast the one who believes and has eternal life and the one who disobeys and experiences the wrath of God. You understand? It's a contrast. He's contrasting two kinds of people, the believing and the disobedient. So to be a believer is to be obedient. To be an unbeliever is to be disobedient. Okay? That's a contrast. It's a parallelism. So then, Jesus 
is Lord. As the scripture speaks of Jesus Christ, there is no mistaking the clear portrait of his person. He is Lord. Without apology, he is lifted up and proclaimed as the Lord of all. For instance, in Matthew 28:18, he clearly says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Right? That's the prelude to the Great Commission there in Matthew 28. Or in Acts 10.36, it simply says, Jesus is Lord of all. Or how about Romans 14.9? For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So you see, Jesus is Lord of the dead and Lord of the living. In other words, he's Lord of everybody. I mean... Is there anybody else other than the dead and the living? How many does the dead and the living include? Okay, so then who is Jesus Lord of? Everybody. Jesus is Lord of everybody. That's what the Bible says. The word Lord implies his deity and his authority. Okay? So I want to remind you about this. I've told you about this before. The word Lord in the Greek is the word kurios. Right? And it, it, in the New Testament, most of the time, its primary meaning is it's referring to Yahweh. I'm sorry. I think I did that right. <laughs> right? The Lord is who? God. It's God. He's God. Right? It's the covenant name for God. The covenant God of the Old Testament. God Almighty. The big guy. Right? Are you with me? That's what that term means in the New Testament. However, in the New Testament, it is applied to who? Jesus. Again and again and again and again and again, the covenant name of the Almighty God is applied to the person of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. And when the New Testament says, Lord, that's exactly what it means. Jesus, the Almighty God. Okay? We could probably spend several weeks looking at that in the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. Okay? But that is, in fact, the case. Um, So, remember, when we talk about the word Lord in the New Testament... That is an expression primarily of the deity of Christ. It's an expression of his godhood. Okay? So, when we talk about the fact that Jesus is God the Son, he's the eternal God, he's, he is God incarnate in the flesh as a man, right? And therefore possesses all the attributes of God, then that means he also possesses the authority of God. Amen? Which makes him what? Lord. Right? In regard to authority. So then, the term Lord applies then specifically to us as though he were our authority. Okay? Which it also meant to the Hebrews when they called God by his covenant name, they meant they were bound to him by covenant. Right? Are you with me? And so, of course, you realize that That is the Old Testament and the law of God. And God is the judge, right? And he's given a high and holy law with many commandments that are to be fully obeyed. And to the Jew, there was no mistaking what that meant. Right? Well, to Jesus and the apostles, there's no mistaking what that means. He's the Lord, right? That means whatever he says, that's what we do. Whatever he says goes. Amen? And so, if you will... This term Lord in the New Testament implies Jesus' deity and specifically his authority. So if I say to you, Jesus is my Savior, then what do you think that means about my relationship to Jesus? Somebody tell me. Well, he's my Savior. What does that mean? He saved me, right? Jesus is my Savior. He saved me, right? I could go on and on. He saved me from sin and death. He saved me from the wrath of God. He propitiates God's wrath against me, right? Are you with me? Jesus saved me. 
He gave his life and paid the, 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 the price of redemption so that I could be redeemed from sin and bought, bought back and reconciled unto God. Jesus is my Savior. He saved me. He saved me from death. He saved me from hell. He saved me from the wrath of God. Right? He set me free from the bondage of sin. Are you with me? Jesus is my Savior. You got that? So what do we mean then when we say Jesus is my Lord? He's my king. What does that mean? He's my authority. Okay? I'm under his authority. I'm under his rule. Remember the kingdom of God? The terms the kingdom of God in the New Testament primarily means what? God's rule, his reign, his right to rule, his authority, his power, his dominion. Are you with me? So when we talk about Jesus being Lord, we talk about his authority. We talk about his dominion. We talk about his power. And what is that authority? What is that dominion? What is that power? Well, it's the power of God, very God. He's the almighty God. He's the sovereign king. You know how many sovereigns there are? Only one. That's what it means to be sovereign. Sovereign means ultimate authority, right? And so when we talk about Jesus being Lord, this is exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about our relationship to him, whereas he is the Lord and I am the servant. He is the Lord and I'm under his authority. Okay, so if we talk about Jesus being a savior, we're saying, well, he saved me, right? He's the one that saved me. If we talk about Jesus being the Lord, we talk about my relationship to him as him being an authority and me being in his service. You understand? And he's simply doing, he's simply doing what he says to do. That's what that authority is. Mm-hmm. He do what he says. Exactly. And, and so here's this fundamental thing, okay? Jesus is not just a savior. He is the Lord. The only one. Are you with me? So you can't just receive Christ in some reductionistic way and say, well, I want him to be a savior for me, but you know what? I don't want him to govern the way I live my life. You know, that's for me. That's, I want to do whatever I want to do, but I still want to go to heaven. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Luke 2.46 defines the savior as Christ the you want to read it to us, or do you? So Luke two forty six, she points out. I think there it says he is. He, he, you call his name Jesus, who is Christ the Lord, right? Luke two forty six. So this is all over in the New Testament, by the way. I mean, you can look look up these terms, Lord. Look up the term Christ. Look up the term Lord. Look up the term Savior. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, it, it says, you shall, uh, 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 you shall call his name Jesus, who is Christ the Lord. Yeah, right? the yeah so the point is simply that. Yeah, I can't. Exactly. Okay, Luke 2.11. So the scripture points out that. Jesus is not just the Christ. He's not just the promised anointed Messiah of the Old Testament who's going to save his people from their sins, but he is the Lord. Okay? So, the word Lord implies his deity and authority. Being God, very God, Jesus is the supreme authority. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is described as the creator of everything, the very God of providence and sustainer of all that is, the reigning king of history, as well as the judge of the living and the dead. If that were not enough to convince us of his authority to rule us, we are blind at the very least. So, for instance, the scripture speaks about Jesus in these terms. Here's just a few. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says this about Jesus. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You understand? He's seen there as the creator and the God of providence. He's sustaining all things. It's there. How about Ephesians 1, 19 and 22? These verses speak of Jesus' authority. And Paul says, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Amen? How's that for a description of lordship? Or how about Acts 10.42? And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that he is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Okay? Jesus is the judge of all people. Okay? That's what the Bible means when it says the living and the dead. It means everybody who ever lived and everybody who ever will live. Okay? How about 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Paul there, pointing out, Jesus is to judge the living and the dead. Okay? This is the way Jesus is portrayed in Scripture. He's seen to be the creator. He's seen to be the God of providence who sustains all things. He's seen to be the reigning king who's far above all dominion and power and rule and authority. Okay? Jesus is seen to be the judge of the living and the dead. There's no question what it means when the Bible says Jesus is Lord. Amen? The fact of the matter is, Jesus is Lord, whether one recognizes it or not. Now get this truth. Jesus, you don't make Jesus Lord. You understand? This is one of those other reductionistic things about the gospel, one of these new watered-down cliches that we do when preaching the gospel in the modern evangelical church. Right? We say to people, just make Jesus your Lord today. Make Jesus. How silly. How ridiculous. As if me, you know me, Sean Sloan, I'm going to make Jesus something other than what he already is. Right? You understand? You understand what's going on here? Let me tell you. Instead of making his will primary, we've made my will primary. You understand? You know, you understand what this means? This means I get to do what I want to do because I'm free to do what I want to do. Wrong. You've missed the whole message of life and the message of the gospel. You're not free to do what you want to do. You're bound by sin. You're a slave to sin. And you remain in your sin and you're going to die in your sin. You're going to be separated from God forever. You're going to perish in hell and burn forever in hell because you're not free to do what you want to do. You're a slave to sin. That's the way the Bible defines mankind, family. We can't mix this message up. We've got it all wrong when we think it's our will that is determinative. You don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. Here's the question. Will you obey Him? Or will you die in your sin? That's the question that the Gospel presents. You follow me? How could we miss this? How can we redefine this? Right? It's a problem. It's a serious, serious error that has infiltrated the entire evangelical community. Okay? I want you to leave this class, not just this one today, but each week, understanding the clear biblical gospel from the Bible. Okay? The clear biblical gospel is Jesus is the Lord. And you don't make him Lord. He is Lord. 
The question is, are you going to willingly subject yourself to his lordship and obey his commandments? Or are you going to perish because you rejected his lordship? Are you with me? Jesus is a savior, and this is how he saves. He gives you power by the Holy Spirit to obey him as Lord. That's how that happens. We'll talk more about it here. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus is Lord whether one recognizes it or not. Just because one has not submitted their life to him does not mean that one is not accountable to him. For he will come to judge every person for the deeds done in the body as the gospel declares. And he alone possesses the authority to determine one's eternal destiny. You understand? Jesus alone. Jesus alone possesses the authority to determine one's eternal destiny. That's what he means when he says, I am the door. Jesus saying, you want to get to the Father? You're going to have to go through me. Right? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Understand? Jesus is the way to the Father. The only way to the Father. Jesus alone possesses the authority to determine one's eternal destiny. Ultimately, every person that has ever lived will bow their knee before Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as Lord. This is what the Bible says. Philippians 2, 9-11 Therefore, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay? The scripture clearly tells us that Jesus is Lord and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. In other words, eventually everyone is going to surrender and submit to Christ and subject their life to him because he is the Lord. He is the judge of the living and the dead. Every man is going to give an account to Jesus Christ. That's why the scripture says it's appointed for a man to die once and then the judgment. Family, do you think my message is harsh? Let me tell you something. It is a very loving thing to do. To tell people that their sin is going to destroy them that their sin has separated them from a holy God, and that the only way they can be reconciled is through Jesus, the Savior and Lord. And when we get saved, okay, here's what happens. We get transformed on the inside by the Holy Spirit of God. And we see the evidence of that transformation when our life changes and we begin to obey Christ and follow Him and do what He does and say what He says and go where He goes. You understand what I'm telling you? And we're going to talk about that at length, but the point is simply to understand this, okay? This is the thing that's missing from our gospel proclamation in modern evangelical Christianity. We want to say, you know, Jesus is big, happy Santa Claus in the sky who's going to fix all your life's problems. All you got to do is believe. Well, who wouldn't buy that bag of tricks? <laughs> the problem is they don't understand. And you, have, you understand, Christianity is something that we go through in a cognitive process. Salvation is a revelatory act. What that means is that God reveals the truth to us and we embrace the truth with the power he gives us. Okay? But if we don't understand the revelation of God, the, I mean, it, it's fundamental to the gospel that we understand the gospel. Are you with me? We'll talk about that more. But the point is, is simply that don't be afraid to warn people. Let me tell you, the gospel is a warning. Okay? And maybe if I lean a little heavy on that, it'll kind of maybe get us out of this easy believism and cause us maybe to, to refocus the way we talk about the gospel, the way we talk about Jesus, and how important it is when we're telling people when they, to believe that they need to repent at the same time. Repentance is a call to obedience. That's what it is. Repentance says, stop sinning and do what is right. Amen? And so our our gospel presentation needs to be balanced, not only with believing in Christ, but also 
repenting of sin and obeying Christ. It, it needs to be balanced not only with, you know, God is a God of love and he so loved the world that he gave Christ that man could be saved, but that also if man rejects Christ, he's going to perish and die, be separated from God forever. Our gospel needs to be balanced. Amen? It's not just about the love of God. It's also a warning that if you don't respond to God's love, you're going to be destroyed. Amen? So God help us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this profound truth that Jesus is Lord. I pray, God, as we are reading through the scripture in the weeks to come, that we will notice how profoundly this is expressed in the Bible. I pray that you will speak to us about our own obedience about our own life change, about our own heart change, God. May our hearts be pure, even as our actions, our words, our thoughts are pure. And God, where they're not, may we remember the glorious cross where we were cleansed and washed and where your love was manifest for us and how you have washed away our sins and given us forgiveness of our sins and now asked us, would we please obey? I pray that we'd be encouraged in our faith, God, and strengthened against sin. May we have discerning hearts. May we discern those areas of our life that you're calling for us to subject to your lordship. That we would hear your voice calling us to obey. And God, strengthen our faith that we might uh, continue to trust you and live lives worthy of our calling. We thank you for all that you are to us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.